welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another chapter of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, uh, one of your co-hosts, and today I'm here with an extraordinarily prolific and amazing writer uh, whose work I really can't wait to dig into. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, Jen. My name's Jill Paul, and I'm an author of historical fiction. And this is my 11th historical novel, The Manhattan Girls, which is set in Prohibition era New York. It's about four women who started a bridge club in 1921. And these women were Dorothy Parker, the famous wit, who I'm sure needs no introduction at all. Jane Grant, who was the first woman reporter at the New York Times and um, trying to start her own magazine at the time. There's um, Winifred Lenehan, a Broadway actress who um, starred in the premiere of George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. And also Peggy Leach, who worked at Condé Nast magazines at the time and was writing her first novels by, by night. So these four incredible women came together, um, started a bridge group. And my novel is the story of the group and their relationships and their efforts to try and keep Dorothy or Dottie, as I call her, to keep her from harming herself. Yeah, I really loved this book. I thought it was um, so much fun. And it was really, really wonderful to get to know all of these women. And I was just, um, you know, constantly marveling at um, the number of luminaries that they just like brush up against in their everyday lives. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what drew you to this social circle in particular, and what made you want to um, explore their lives on the page? Well, I think I think all the characters that I write about, and I do tend to write novels with real historical characters in them. My last 10 novels, I think some real historical characters have wandered in at some point, and then in 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 a few of them, they're the main the main event. But uh, I was I was just fascinated by Dorothy Parker from I think my teenage years, just this combination. I mean, it's a classic, really, the kind of depressed clown her wit is so sharp and modern and still incredibly funny today when you look at some of her lines you know for example she said if you want to know what god thought about money just look at the people he gave it to and uh, you know that you could that applies to so many people today i'm not going to name names obviously and uh, just everything she came out with is so sharp really clever wordplay and yet she has this incredibly difficult psychology. She was very insecure in her relationships. She had a very broken up childhood with her mother who died when she was five. Then her stepmother died, then her uncle died, then her father died, then one of her brothers disappeared. So really a huge, you know, a psychiatrist would have a field day with the abandonment in her, in her life. And a lot of people with fractured backgrounds like that are drawn to comedy in a, in a perverse kind of way. It doesn't cure them, but um, that, that was something that I was interested in exploring, how that worked in her particular case. And of course she was, hanging out at the Algonquin Round Table, which was a very male-dominated atmosphere, it seems to me, these famous male journalists and critics and columnists. And uh, she held her own 
amongst them all. And that was interesting too. But I just love, I love the 1920s, whether it's in Paris, London or New York, because women were finding so many new freedoms that they hadn't had before the war. They could have fulfilling careers. They could rent their own apartments. They could drive cars. if they were married, they could get birth control um, from the, the, you know, the Margaret Sanger clinic. There were all sorts of things that they could suddenly do. So and that made it possible for some of them to have love lives, to take lovers in the way that men traditionally had. Um, but it's not always easy to cope with that as a woman, you know, to have different lovers. And that was another thing that Dottie was up against, um, you know, the emotional toll that that can take. So there were just honestly, Jenna, that a million things I wanted to write about in this book. It's a subject that it had been on my list for a while, but I was nervous about it because really, who do I think I am writing dialogue for the wittiest woman in the world? <laughs> you know, that's uh, something I had to really consider. Um, and I discussed it a lot with my editor. But I decided I'm writing about her in real life, not every single line that she came out with in her life was hysterically funny. You know, she said, pass the salt like everybody else. <laughs> you know, can you hold that door for me? So I took, I thought, no, I don't have to make every line funny. Um, I can use some, you know, funny lines. I think she probably, looking at some of her lines, I think she rehearsed them and waited for the right time to slip them into conversation. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I I found a way to write her thoughts and feelings. And and it's also told from the points of views of the other three women as well. Chapter about, so it's Jane, Dottie, Winifred, Peggy. You hear from their points of view. And... um, that's how that's how I structured it. Yeah, I was, um, you know, particularly impressed by the way that you captured Dorothy's voice, and you know, it occurs to me while you were speaking that in some ways that task seems like it would be, um, in some ways, a really easy and fun one because she had such a distinctive voice, and she is very. Um, like when you read her words, you know, you can tell it's her. But on the other hand, that also makes it incredibly difficult because what a level, like what a bar to clear, you know, like she was just so funny and so sparkling so much of the time. And then to have to really capture that is just like a tremendous task. And I think it you do a really good job of, um, you know, capturing how performative it was, you know, and that's why she doesn't really have to talk that way all the time because it is like an act that she's putting on for the world in some ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of wordplay in it. You know, she loved words. She loved to just twist the meaning of a word. You know, there's that famous quote. um, She was asked to define the word horticulture or to use the word horticulture in a sentence. She said, you can take a horticulture, but you can't make her think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how quickly did she come up with that? We don't know. I'd like to think it was this spur of the moment, but... uh, Yeah, um, she she just loved words. So when you're trying to come up with a funny dotty line, you just have to take words and twist them a little bit. Um, That's what that's what I tried to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. It's fun to, you know, read her voice and then also to sort of, as you say, you know, see what's going on under the surface, um, because as we just spoke about, like she had this sparkling wit and she presented this really carefree and breezy um cosmopolitan girl face to the world but she was dealing with a lot of mental health struggles and a lot of interpersonal problems and you know it's it's it was interesting to see how her friends sort of come together to support her and try to 
get past that, um, that defensive shield, you know, because the humor is in a way like a, a defense mechanism. Like, did you see it that way? Or, too, or? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And um, yeah, that's why I wanted her women friends in there. I think they would have been more supportive possibly than the than the men round the Algonquin round table would have been. Although, although having said that, Bob Benchley was just about her closest friend in that period. But I, I just wanted to write about these women because I thought each of them had a particular story. Of course, they must have wanted to shake Dottie at times because she was her own worst enemy. She was chaotic. She drank too much. She didn't pay her bills and she rushed out and bought herself a new hat when she couldn't afford it. And, um, and she just chose the worst possible men to have affairs with, the ones that were definitely never going to commit to her and probably going to trample all over her feelings as well and I don't know about you Jen but I do have friends like that and um, the the kind that need rescuing and um, they're very lovable and sometimes you just want to take them by the shoulders and say come on you know (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I think we all have those friends and then, you know, every once in a while we all are that friend too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Oh yes. I've been, I've been there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about her friends because I think it was really striking that all these women, Dorothy, Jane, Peggy, and Winifred are all, um, you know, as you were saying, they're all existing at this moment where there are so many new opportunities for women and for them to expand their lives and to step into new occupations and roles. But they are also up against a lot of, um, you know, like the old guard, the mm-hmm. the, the men who don't want to, um, you know, share any, <laughs> any of the power or the prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still dealing with men who don't take them seriously. Um, and I think you, you show a lot of really interesting ways in which women um, have to learn to navigate those, uh, those boundaries and those um, discriminations, you know? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that comes across quite strongly in Jane Grant's story. She was the first woman a reporter on the city desk at the New York times, but the men there insisted on calling her fluff and, playing tricks on her, sending her out on fake stories and, uh, you know, leaving strange things on her desk. (laughs) And um, she put up with it. She really did. Later in life, she was asked if she saw herself as a feminist. And she said she supposed she had been without ever making a conscious decision. But in fact, she had joined the Lucy Stone League. She was a co-founder of this league to um, campaign for women not to have to take, married women not to have to take their husband's names. And she always called herself Jane Grant, although she was married to Harold Ross. She campaigned in 1924. She started a society to help other women get into newspapers, to to get careers in journalism. So she really was quite incredible. But she and Harold took over this great big house in Hell's Kitchen. She was the one that did all the work. He was living there. Alec Walcott was living there. Jane bought the food. She arranged the cleaning. She (laughs) arranged everything. So, you know, there's feminism. And she was just starting at the beginning (laughs) of being a feminist. and uh, the, the men were still walking all over her to an extent, although I have to say, I don't think I would have taken her on. She was quite indomitable, really. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you see that very strongly in Jane's career. With Winifred, she started out as an actress. Now, of the four of them, she's the one that was the most hard to research because there's very little about her. There's a Wikipedia page, there's reviews on IMDb of theatre plays that she was in there's a film that she 
was in in 1949, which I've watched. And um, so it gave me a bit more leeway as a novelist to shape her story, to make it complement the others. But certainly, you know, I knew from the facts that after her incredible achievement in George Bernard Shaw's premiere of St. Joan, she backed away from acting. And I talked to a few actress friends about this. We looked through the facts of her life and what she did. And she stepped back. She wanted more control. She didn't want to be the person standing on the stage while, while a male doctor director told her to unfasten a couple of buttons in her blouse or whatever. She wanted to be in charge a bit more. And that's what she moved into directing her own shows and um, in the 1930s making um, radio plays. So, yeah, I think her career from the surface facts seems to be about taking more control as well which was, you know, very hard for the era. And uh, she must have been quite, I've portrayed her as quite a gentle character, but I think she must have been quite able to stand up for herself as well. Mm. Yeah, I think with a lot of these women, you see a really interesting mix of um, of strength and resilience, but mm. also um, vulnerability, you know, and like a little bit of fragility. There's this really interesting balance there. And it you know, I think that kind of like both were probably necessary to survive in this world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just love that the way that their um, their friendship is this constant presence in their lives over the years, even though they sort of like recede from each other's lives and then come back or have little disagreements and get over them. Um, and they are able to do this despite the fact that like a, they have a lot of different like viewpoints they have a lot of different beliefs and they are just like really a lot of like very independent thinking women who who have a really interesting connection you know (laughs) yeah I mean I really just found that sentence about the bridge club group that they started in Marion Mead's fantastic biography of of Dorothy Parker of what fresh hell is this and uh, I thought oh that's interesting and then it cropped up again when I was reading Jane's memoir of her times you know her marriage and starting the New Yorker with her husband Um, and uh, so I've invented most of the bridge group I don't know how long it lasted but you know this is the great thing about being a novelist (laughs) we can we can take liberties Um, I always when I do make up bits and pieces from from real people's lives, I always have a historical afterword at the end where I confess because I'm not in the business of trying to falsify history. But, you know, that was interesting in this, you know, some obviously with Dorothy, there are lots of biographies and there's lots of documented fact about her with Winifred, just about nothing with Peggy Leach, Margaret Leach. Um, the best source that I found for learning about her was that she wrote three novels in the 1920s in the period that I'm writing about. And I I managed to get hold of copies of all of them. And uh, you can really tell that she's a very intuitive person who watches other other people very carefully um, and watches other people's relationships. And uh, I enjoyed the novels actually, they're dated, they're of their time, but uh, yeah, that's how I came up with my portrait of her character. Um, I think she was another very strong one. Definitely. Yeah, she was um, so much fun and she was so interesting. And I really like the way that she um, spoke her mind and was really not afraid to disagree with people or to express, uh, 
you know, uh, displeasure at a statement. And I, I really admire that because I think, especially in that era, but still today, like women are often sort of culturally uh, instructed not to do that, right? Like to keep the peace and to keep your opinions to yourself. And so it was just really fun to see a woman in this time period who was just like really not afraid just to see what she thinks. And she had a lot of really interesting thoughts. Like one of my favorite lines in the whole book was something that Peggy said um, when she said that uh, religion is man's compromise with a hostile environment. And I was like, gosh, that's such a good line. Like just, and it just like sums <laughs> up her, her outlook so well. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like that. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted her to be the, you know, the intellectual one of the bunch she's a big reader and um a big thinker but um yeah we had to we had to let her have some fun as well in the book so and it's and it's true that she did have an affair with this uh therapist psychotherapist you know that was another fact that I stumbled across so which was very brave in those days when it was hard it was still hard to get contraception it was you know if women wanted to get married then Still, it was probably better if they were virgins and a lot of men wouldn't look at them if they weren't. So, yeah, it was a very, very difficult time still to, to be yeah. a woman. Absolutely. Um, and it, it was an interesting time for the country, too, because uh, this was during the Prohibition era. And prohibition is really kind of like central to their lives, <laughs> like in a lot of ways, like they um, are kind of immersed in like, uh, a sort of like intellectual drinking culture, like especially at the, you know, the Algonquin, um, where they are just constantly uh, drinking and engaging in this wordplay and just sort of like mm -hmm. all, you know, performing their their intelligence for each other. Um, yeah, was there something in particular that also like uh, drew you to that time period as well or? Well, I've always been fascinated by prohibition and um, the way that particularly in New York, which you know, is famous for having a lot of very kind of um, liberal minded people there and uh, independent and they go their own way. So the minute the government said, no, you, you shall not drink, um, New Yorkers became absolutely ingenious in finding ways to get alcohol, you know, all over the place. Cordial stores, you just go in and they've got cordial on display and they've got the booze under the counter. And um, taxi drivers would pe peel back a rug in the footwell and say, hey, ladies, can I give you something to drink at your party or wherever you're going? And, and um, yeah, but of course, it created this whole gangster culture as well. It created a lot of millionaires out of them. So it just, and arrests for drunkenness actually went up public drunkenness after, you know, in the years after prohibition, which was kind of against the point that the, the Temperance League were trying to achieve. So yes, it was a strange um, experiment, which has still had a, a lasting effect on American culture. I think when I, I lived, I went to school in the States for a year and we were in West Virginia, which was a dry state. And my parents used to drive across the border to buy alcohol. So I remember that. I don't know if it still is, but uh, oh, that's yes, so I could say that that was still lasting at the time. Mm. Yeah. And I know there are still dry counties to this day. You know, there are. Mm -hmm. But that and it's interesting how that sort of prohibition or making something illegal or inaccessible you know, immediately makes it more attractive. And it also like supports an entire like shadow economy <laughs> of people who will get you those things. Um, that leads me to another thing that I loved about this, which is all the cameos. 
from uh, luminaries and some not so luminaries of the era. Um, like, so as we were just saying, like the, there are a lot of appearances here from famous gangsters um, in this era, mm-hmm. especially those who sort of like made their name off the back of prohibition and like, acquiring these things that you could no longer really get easily. Um, so can you talk a little bit about them? Like, cause we see um, Arnold Rothstein, we see Lucky Luciano, we see uh, Meyer Lansky, just like so many interesting figures. So I'm seeing in the novel, I'm seeing them from the point of view of, well, it's mainly Jane and Winifred. And so there's only a limited amount that we can talk about, but uh, yeah, these guys must've been really scary. <laughs> um, you, there's no two ways about it. Rothstein was the one that was said to have fixed the 1990, 1919 World Series. And I know they were all very involved in fixing horse races and, and um, you know, narcotics, all kinds of, you know, gangster activity that was growing. And then of course exploded when prohibition um, was, was, overturned then they had to find new ways to earn a living and there was a lot of warfare and and none of them survived I think into the mid 19 and none of them survived a decade beyond when I'm writing about them it's a it's a dangerous career but yeah it's very difficult with um, when you're doing research on a book like this you're going to have some cameos but who do you leave out I mean Dorothy knew Hemingway she um he um in fact, he was quite mean about her. Do I leave, you know, I left that all out. It just didn't fit my story arc. This is the really hard thing. Um, you have to take, when you're writing about real historical characters, you can take the facts, but you need to make it fit. To make it a novel, you need to make it fit into this narrative arc with something that drives it forwards that the readers want to find out and a beginning, a middle and an end. And you can't just take a little story like, Ernest Hemingway being incredibly rude about Dorothy Parker at a party and shoehorn it into the novel because it just didn't fit, which is annoying. I'll have to write another novel to get that bit in. <laughs> that Yeah, that's really interesting to me because um, before I worked in libraries, I trained as a historian and I have absolutely felt that urge too when, you know, writing my dissertation back in the day, like every every interesting anecdote that you kind of happen upon was sort of like is so hard won, you know, and so mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like pulled from sources that you just want to include it all. And that process of figuring out what to include and what not mm-hmm. to include can be really Absolutely. heartbreaking. <laughs> but Jen, you were you were working in medieval history, weren't you? Yes. There's, <laughs> there's so much less known. I mean, I, I find that fascinating about medieval. And then all of a sudden you come across a manuscript or some little piece that just gives you such insight into their lives. But um, yeah, I can see that you would want to include everything because <laughs> there's just so much less to know, isn't there? Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, especially yeah, when you're translating and when you are happening upon sources that, you know, people haven't really looked at in a while, you're like, well, I worked really hard to get to this thing. So <laughs> it feels like I should include it. Um, but that is also where like feature research and where feature books come from. So mm-hmm. that can be really important, too. Um, what kind of sources did you look at? Like you mentioned Peggy's novels, and I'm wondering, like, were there um newspapers or archives or things like that that you uh, consulted? There's video footage. Um, The Dorothy Parker Society website has um, recordings of Dorothy reading her own work, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, There are 
movies, um, all kinds of things. There are some great documentaries. Ken Burns did an amazing documentary on prohibition. I just love everything he does, more or less. That was a great uh, one. His prohibition one was very good. <laughs> Yeah, I think they're all good. I just catch everyone as they come out. So, yeah, I mean, I always start off when I'm writing about real historical characters. I start off with the main biographies, um, always remembering, you know, as a historian and I trained in history at university as well. You need to look at the agenda that each biography has, biographer has going into it. And um, particularly with some of the women, not so much Dorothy, but some of the women I've written about in the past, like Wallace Simpson, um, who married the king, you know, Edward VIII of England abdicated his throne for her. I think there was a real misogyny in some of her biographies that was, how could a man possibly love her so much that um, he would give up a throne for her when, you know, she was quite plain looking. And there was a lot of, um, I think she got a really bad press. And so it's kind of digging between the lines of what the biographers are saying and why they're saying it and trying to come up with your own view of what this person was like. And uh, yeah, that, that's part of the job. So I'll read through the biographies, um, trying to think about which big bits ring true for me. What I'm looking for, I'm trying to get my own kind of emotional empathy with these women, think about what, what, how would I feel about them if they walked into the room right now and sat down and joined in our conversation, which goodness, I wish Dorothy would <laughs> be great. Um, what would they say for themselves? And always, I mean, I've never written about anybody, anybody I didn't like. So as a main character, I might have a few side characters. Um, <laughs> but yeah, trying to find what it is I like about them. And when I find that they had a lot of the friends, you think, OK, this is good. I can work with this. Why did their friends like them and, and take it from there? Mm. But yeah, there's a lot of digging. But obviously, unlike you writing your PhD in med medieval history, I'm, I've got a lot more leeway because if I... If I can't find a fact somewhere, I can just make it up. <laughs> I can just make things up. <laughs> and, you know, I really, um, I, I really love that you just mentioned your process because one of the other things that I loved about this book so much is that it feels, even though we have like a, you know, a, a third person omniscient narrator uh, here, you know, speaking through the perspectives of these different women, um, it's a very intimate uh narrator voice I feel like and you know when I was reading it like I felt like I was kind of sitting next to the narrator at one of these parties you know who was like pointing out all the different people in the room to me and you know cluing me in onto what was going on and it just like really makes you feel like you're there it's very immediate and it's very it makes you want to be there <laughs> oh thank you well that's that's means that's great to hear um so I've got it's close third person narration through each of the four women's points of view chapter about so when you've got close third person mm -hmm. it means you could you know the reader can only see through that character's eyes can only see and know what that character knows mm -hmm. but that's why I like to have maybe I've got four narrators in this so that it gives you more of a range because mm -hmm. if it was just Dorothy telling her own story <laughs> I don't it would be a bit um yeah, I don't know. I don't quite know if I would trust it anyway. Um, she did invent things a lot about herself and other people. And um, yeah, not entirely trustworthy as a narrator, especially when she was drunk, which she was a lot of the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that seems like a big challenge, I think, to their lifestyle in general. <laughs> it's just the amount of drinking that you sort of had to do to be in the social circle and to, <laughs> and I remember you do have one character who is, um, sober at, at the beginning of joining the circle. And then by, you know, as that time goes on, he has, becomes a drinker too, and is kind of pulled into the, the lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, that's Bob Benchley. And uh, yeah, he had an orange blossom in a club one day, having been teetotaler before. And he went on to become an alcoholic and died of cirrhosis of the liver oh in the 1940s. Gosh. So yeah, that didn't work so well for him. I mean, the other thing is that, that they're all young when I'm writing about them. They're in their late 20s, mm-hmm. um, just crossing the boundary into the 30s. And um, yeah, I could get away with a lot more partying at that age than I do now. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you've got a lot more stamina for late nights. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't try it now. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, it does seem, yeah, it, it seems fun for a very particular part of, of your life. <laughs> um, so one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was um, another cameo that we had mentioned earlier a little bit, but I wanted to talk about Winifred and uh, George Bernard Shaw, because one of my favorite plot lines, you know, especially as a medievalist was, um, you know, the the rehearsals for and the premiere of his Joan of Arc play mm-hmm. and um, reading about um, the rehearsal process and then the performance. And then, you know, just really made me want to see that production in particular. Oh, There's like a certain. I, I wish I recorded it. Yes. Um, it's like a really unique sort of like morning that you do for live theater performances that you can't, you know, yeah, you can't possibly see. And I, I've definitely felt that reading this. <laughs> I think she was clearly a very, from reading the reviews, I think she was clearly a very transformative actress that she stepped into the role and lost herself in it and could hear the, you know, God speaking voices in her head and, uh, and uh, yeah, it seems to have been quite shattering. I mean, universally, all the top theatre critics on Broadway were were saying it was a you know a career making performance, and uh, you must see this show, and um, which is great for George Bernard Shaw as well because his career had been in a slight slump mm-hmm. just before yeah. that. So it worked it worked well for both of them. But um, you know, I'm not sure Winifred was entirely happy with the level of fame because after that she stopped taking leading roles. So there was something that happened in the course of that that made her not want to carry on with that level of fame. And she was only 25 at the time. She could easily have done a lot more leading lady work. Um, but yeah, p- magazines wanting to interview her about what shade of lipstick she wore and and where she bought her clothes was just, I, you know, in my version anyway, it wasn't her kind of idea. She was a serious actress and she wanted to be taken seriously for her craft. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, reading that, like some of that was, you know, it was very insightful into the the sort of, um, you know, ways in which women had to struggle against stereotyping and being underestimated when going into these careers. But it also kind of dismayed me because that stuff still happens, you know, like when 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 actors are on the red carpet, the men get asked about like the acting choices they made and their careers. And then the women get asked, like, who are you wearing? <laughs> you know, like, I know. <laughs> I know. But the difference is nowadays that actresses are calling it out. Scarlett Johansson calls it out and says, you know, hey, why are you asking me about my clothes? And, <laughs> and yeah, and that's just what we 
as women have to keep doing as long as it keeps on happening which has probably got a while to go yet. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really nice to know that, you know, almost a uh, hundred years ago now that, that these, these women were sort of already uh, paving the way and sort of like showing the way for future generations. So. Really? I mean, it feels, it doesn't feel like a hundred years. It feels so modern what they were, you know, the problems they were facing and the way that they confronted them. And, and that's what I loved about it. It's, um, they just, you know, when you think that just 20 years before that was kind of, um, they were wearing great big bustles and corsets and so forth. They'd made a giant leap there from their mother's generation, certainly. Absolutely. And those time periods in which we're taking giant leaps in which you, know, you get like massive transformations in society are like just really rich, I think, for storytelling and um you know, especially exploring yeah. just like the differences and how different generations think and like people coming up against social uh, norms and all that stuff. It's just really exciting to watch people act during that period, you know? Mm, absolutely. And it was, I'm fascinated. Um, I want to look a bit more into how it was slightly different in Paris, London and New York. I think in Paris, um, they were much further ahead in terms of wearing makeup and scandalous clothes. Um, than the Americans were, um, and and then London as well. I think Paris was leading the way, but then there were a lot of artists and intellectuals and left wing um, people in town, and that maybe fed into it. There was Picasso, and yeah, I don't know. I haven't written a Paris novel yet, but I can feel it coming on. <laughs> Sometimes lots of things just build up in your head, and you think, oh, I need to do this. <laughs> well, I would love to read that book. Yeah, Paris was very interesting in this time period because they were so ahead of the curve. And also in terms of just like, um, you know, racial integration and yeah. acceptance of different cultures. And it's just like a so, so ripe for for storytelling. It's really great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Josephine Baker. I think there's just a new biography out of Josephine Baker and her work, um, not just for the resistance, but according to this, I just read last week, she was working for British intelligence during the war. She was just an extraordinary woman. Mm. Just wonderful. But there have been a lot of books about her. <laughs> and I think um, Ruth Negga is going to be playing her in, a, in an upcoming film, too. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that will be wonderful. That will be great. Um, well, I wanted to thank you um, so much for coming to talk with us today. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm really glad that you made the time you know, to come and talk to our listeners. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, okay, listeners, uh, you can check out the Manhattan Girls at your favorite library or independent bookstore. I highly recommend it. It's just like, you know, I think I said in my neck alley review, like this, it just goes down like a like a champagne cocktail. You know, it's just like it's a <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been Jen in conversation with Jill Paul, and it is time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.